Thank you, music team, for leading us in our worship of song. I think I've probably said this before, but I could sing that song every Sunday. We have had a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things to be worried about over the past six months, eight months, a year, and with so much uncertainty in the future, we can rest knowing that it is well with our souls because of what Jesus has done. This morning, Lord willing, we will continue on through our series in Philippians and we'll read Philippians 3, verses 1 through 14. We have been tracking with Paul through his, his thought process as he's tried to explain to the Philippians what he's doing, where he's coming from, not specifically about um, the details of what he's done, but that he's just been spreading the gospel. He has been preaching and teaching regardless of where he is, specifically in prison. He has been caring only about the gospel and proclaiming Jesus to others, not about his physical status, where he is. And then he tries to explain to the Philippians and he says, now, now you take that attitude too. You have that mindset of Christ where you just care about other people and preaching the gospel. You just care about others, not about yourself. You just push the gospel. And then last time we looked at the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And we come to our section now and our section is kind of smushed in between, sandwiched in between the godly examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus and the example that Paul gives. And Paul now says, as, as you see these godly examples, as you imitate these godly examples, including Paul, including Timothy, and t- including Epaphroditus, Paul goes on in this section, we'll see, he, he, he has a warning for believers. Be careful that you don't slip into the wrong mindset. He's called them to have the mindset of Christ. And now he says, be careful that as you pursue Christ, as you work for Christ, as you work for each other, for the common good of the church and for the proclamation of the gospel, watch your minds. The big question that Paul's addressing in this section is, where does my righteousness come from? Does it come from the works that I'm doing and the way that I'm serving each other and the way that I'm serving Christ? Is that where my righteousness comes from or from somewhere else? And Paul here is reminding them, as a safeguard. We see that in verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 and we'll read down to the end of verse 14. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's just bow in a moment of prayer quickly. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of what he's done, and we are grateful. We hear Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord, and we do this morning rejoice in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. We rejoice in the benefits that we have of knowing him, and we pray that as we Look at your word for just a few moments this morning that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly. We thank you for the things that are going on in our church, in our family. We thank you for the kids' ministry that have been brought up a couple of times already this morning. We thank you for the teachers, for the helpers, for their dedication to our children, for their dedication to this church family, for the love that they have for each and every kid. We pray for those children for those young hearts who the world would want and desire nothing more than to pull them away from you. We pray that you would find us faithful in teaching our children the truth of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be pleased, maybe even this morning, Lord, to call one of these kids to yourself. That's the biggest desire of every parent. And Lord, we know you are pleased when any heart turns to you. We pray that this morning, for the kids out there, for the kids in here, for those of us who are in this room, for those of us who are in their own rooms outside of this building, we pray that this morning that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray that you would teach us to love him more, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. So verse one is Paul's transition from here's your examples to here's here's my warning for you believers as, as you follow these examples, as you really seek earnestly and desire to have the mindset of Christ, Paul says, further, my brothers and sisters, additionally, just one more thing, hold on, just keep this in the back of your minds as we move forward, rejoice in the Lord. That's something that Paul says over and over and over again, not just in the book of Philippians, but in all of his letters, rejoicing in the Lord. And if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, you know that in chapter four, he says it, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. That's the one that we like to, to paint or take pictures of and put up on our walls in our houses, right? That, that is a classic verse that we like to have visible, and rightly so. Paul says it here, at the beginning of chapter three as a precursor for what's to come. Rejoice in the Lord. That seems fairly obvious considering what he's told us about the gospel, what we have in Jesus Christ in our status now in Jesus. Of course I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord. Paul is now saying this 
to help us understand, rejoice in the Lord, not in other things. He's going to talk about some other things that other people might be drawn to rejoicing in. And Paul says, no, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. That is, Paul has already talked about this. He says says this over and over and over again, which should help us in understanding, if I say the same thing over and over again, don't get bored. (laughs) That the truth of the gospel is not boring. That the truth of who Jesus is and the fact that we can come to Jesus Christ and have salvation found in him, that is worth rejoicing about each and every morning. That each and every morning you get up, you should like Paul here. It's no trouble for me to hear this again. It's no trouble for me to tell you about this again, to talk about this again, because this is where we have life. It's in the Lord. And then Paul says, and it is a safeguard for you. That is, hearing these things over and over and over again, it's not just for fun. It's actually important for the safeguarding of our hearts, of our minds, of who we are. We need to hear these truths over and over again. Then Paul gets into verse two through six. Verses two through six, Paul actually gets to his warning. He says, don't fall into the mindset that your religious acts, the things that you do, provide righteousness before God. Verse two, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. This, this is a specific warning against the people who embody the mindset that he's talking against. Those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. These are three different angles of the same problem. Paul has said, rejoice in the Lord, don't rejoice in other things. That, that's what he's getting to. And these people that he's talking about rejoice in other things. These terms were terms used by Jews about Gentiles, those who were not of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish people. If you were not a Hebrew, everyone on the outside was considered a dog, an evildoer, a mutilator of the flesh. That gets more to the specific point that Paul is talking about, circumcision, which we see in verse 3. But you, you remember the, the story in 2 Kings verses eight, in chapter 18? Um, it's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Remember that Sunday school story where... Um, Elijah, he's calling out the prophets of Baal and he's really calling out all of those who would put their faith and trust, trust in Baal instead of the God of the universe, Yahweh himself. And they, he does that, that altar thing where you, you, know, he put, you, you call down fire from heaven from your God and I will call down fire from heaven from, from my God and we'll see which sacrifice is burnt up. And during, during the, the prophets of Baal, while they are doing their thing, no fire's coming down. And Elijah does that thing where he starts mocking them. He says, well, maybe, maybe he's taking a, a bathroom break. Maybe just yell a little bit louder. Or maybe he's gone on vacation. Maybe he's napping. Maybe you just gotta speak up a little bit. And what, what the prophets of Baal start doing is they start taking spears and swords and they start cutting themselves to try to get Baal to notice what they're doing. Look at what we're doing to ourselves in honor of you. And it doesn't work. That's the same idea that Paul's talking about here, except he's reduced... What, what these people are talking about, circumcision, the Jews who had been speaking to the Gentile believers in Philippi, it's not quite certain whether they're unbelieving Jews or believing Jews. That was an issue in Galatia. Paul writes to the Galatian believers and he says, there are some of you there who claim to have faith in Christ who are saying you have to become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. And Paul tears that to shreds. He says, no, that's not it at all. Because if you look at Abraham himself, Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of faith before circumcision was even brought up in his life. So righteousness doesn't come through circumcision, which is the problem in Galatia. Here we're not quite sure if that's exactly what Paul's writing about. Is he writing to people in the church 
who are telling the Philippian believers, the Gentile Philippian believers, you have to become a Jew before you become a Christian? Or is it outsiders? Is it the common talk that they've heard that you really ought to be circumcised? You really ought to do these certain things before God, and that's the only way that you can be righteous before God. The problem was, Paul basically, by using these terms on these people, he flips it. He says, that's how they attack Gentile believers. They really have it all wrong. That's really actually true of them. They are the dogs. Dogs were not pets. They were scavengers. They ate garbage, a term that Paul will use later in this passage. They were not friendly creatures to have around. They were impure. You did not eat them for food. You did not have them around. They weren't like cats where they ate the mice. They literally were just dirty, nasty creatures you did not want around. Paul says that by using this term, these people, their presence before God is just as impure as a dog's presence in your sight is impure. God doesn't see anything that they do as righteous. Those evildoers, everyone on the outside of Judaism, they committed all the evil acts. We have the law of God. We do exactly what God says. Although if you read the history of the nation of Israel, they were not very good at it. They were not very good at following God's commands and God's laws. Mutilators of the flesh, Paul basically diminishes their, their one religious right, the one thing that they held on to. Paul says, without faith in Christ, no better than mutilation. Doesn't mean anything. Paul then in verse 3 emphasizes that spiritual circumcision, apart from the physical thing, one way or the other, it doesn't matter. And Paul talks about that in different areas, different scriptures. He says here, Spiritual circumcision is better than physical. That's all that matters. For we, it is we who are the circumcision. Paul, a Jew, and as he will go on to say in a few moments, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the best of the best, he associates himself with the Gentile believers on the basis of not their physical circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Three different angles of what it means to be the true circumcision, the real circumcision, to have the circumcision of the heart, to be made right with God. Spiritual is better than physical. Then in verse 4, Paul says, some of you may be tempted to play that game. Because some of you may say, but Paul, you don't really know me. You don't know who I am, or you don't know my family history. You don't know where I've come from. How can you really speak to me? You're, you're talking to these, some of these Gentile believers, and, and they, they, they hadn't heard about Jesus up until a few weeks ago, a few months ago, a few years ago. They lived the majority of their life in the Gentile city of Philippi, doing their own thing. But what about me, Paul? Like, do you know how long I've been walking in living for God? Paul basically says, if you want to play that game, you can't win. You can't beat me. This is what Paul says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He says, don't put confidence in flesh, in who you are and what you've done. You put your confidence in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he's done. And if you feel any temptation to play that game, Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Well, I'm pretty good. I've done a few things, a couple of things. 
Paul says, yeah, but I can one-up you in every category. And he does that not to win the game, but to prove that for all of those things that Paul has, as he will explain later, it doesn't matter. But look at the things that he does explain. Verse 5. Verses 5 and 6, he gives four reasons Four reasons that someone might have confidence in themselves on the basis of birth. That is outside of themselves in their own efforts. And then he gives three reasons on the basis of his own efforts. So one, just on the fact that you were born, right? Who you are as an individual. And then three reasons based on effort. The first one, verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. Every good Jewish family would circumcise their sons on the eighth day. It's true of Jesus. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. This is over against those of Gentile background who were coming into the Jewish faith pre-Christ. They were coming into, they, they began to see and understand who the God of the universe was. That the God that the Jews worshipped was the real God, the one true God. That the I am was the one who ought to be worshipped and served. And so they would come into the Jewish faith And there were rules and regulations in the Old Testament for how these people were to be assimilated, brought in. And these people, some of whom would have been circumcised later in their life. Not on the eighth day of their life, but later on. They were coming into the Jewish faith and they were circumcised later. And Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm better than than anybody else in terms of circumcision. I've got that one check off the list. Then he says, of the people of Israel... This one, when we, um, as I was digging into that one specifically, I found that our English translations, we only have so many words to help us understand exactly what is being said in the text. And when Paul says, of the people of Israel, that term people, there's different ways we can understand that. There's people in terms of, we are all of the people of Canada. We are living in Canada. And yet there are some who were not born of Canada and who, who are not born of, born in Canada. So in some sense, I can say that I am a person, a citizen of Canada in a different way than Lalo because Lalo was not born here. Correct? You were not born here? <laughs> we are both citizens of the nation of Canada, of the dominion of Canada. And yet, being people of Canada can have slightly different nuances, slightly different understandings. What Paul is getting into it here. He's saying that I am actually born of Israel. There are people who, can come, who came into the nation of Israel, who came into the people of Israel, and yet, because they were not born in Israel, they did not have that Israelite heritage, Paul says, I'm, I'm actually, I've got that one up on them. Which would have been true for many of the believers in Philippi. They were not of the people of Israel, and yet... They could be brought into the family of God of different ways. Of the tribe of Benjamin. That's an interesting one because who cares? Like if you're reading through it, you might just go, Paul, who cares what tribe you're from? Except understanding the national pride, the tribe pride that would have been in the people of Benjamin. If you, if you go flipping through your Old Testament and you find what's, speci- what's interesting about the tribe of Benjamin Benjamin was one of the two favorite sons of the patriarch Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. You can sing the song in the back of your head about learning all their names. Um, Does anybody know that song? No? Okay. Forget I said it. Don't sing that song. 
Jacob had two sons by his favorite wife. Now I can't remember. Rachel. I got them mixed up. Rachel. She couldn't have children. And then finally the Lord blessed Jacob and Rachel with children. And they were Jacob's favorite because Rachel was the one he wanted to marry to begin with. Then he was tricked into marrying uh, Leah. And then he had children with their servants. It's confusing, I know. Go read it yourself. And you can track through that whole story. Benjamin was one of those favorite children. He was the pride and joy of Jacob. Benjamin also produced the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. So the first king that the people of Israel choose came from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin also, as you continue through your Old Testament history, when you come to the the split within the kingdom, when Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they, they, they pull the kingdom apart, and ten tribes go to the north, two tribes go to the south, Benjamin was one of the two tribes that remained loyal to the kingdom of David, to the family line of David. There's some national pride, some historic pride in who we are. We stood for the king that God chose. We didn't follow after the king that that the people chose. We stuck with what God said. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that is, when, when the Greeks came in to the nation of Israel, there was something called Hellenization, the Hellenization of the, the nation of Israel, the Greekifying of the people of Israel, of both who they were in terms of just socially, but also religiously, some, some Greek thought, some Greek act, some, some Greek influence had found its way into the quote-unquote Jewish church. And Paul says, no, I retained my Hebrew heritage. I still, I still know Hebrew. I still speak Hebrew. I still have held on to who my heritage is. I haven't let go of any of that. Those are the four reasons based on birth. Then he has three reasons based on effort. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law of faultless, he says, I have lived my life in accordance with the law of God and I am faultless. Not perfect. I don't think Paul would even, before being saved, would have claimed perfection under the law. But in terms of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, Paul had that. He was a Pharisee. He was an elite. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He would have had much of the law memorized and he actually did it. He followed that out to the point of persecuting the church because he genuinely thought, he genuinely understood that what these people were doing in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord was dishonoring to Yahweh, to God himself. He didn't quite understand all the theology and how Jesus fit into that theology properly. Paul says, all of this stuff, I've got you all beat. Like you you might have a few things. Paul says, I've got it all. I've got all of the boxes checked. And then he moves into verse 7. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. He throws all of that out. All of his heritage. All of the things that he clung to in terms of religious perfection according to the law. Religious rightness according to what he did and who he was when he was born He just tosses it out. Verses 7 through 11, 
Paul picks up and he says, have the mindset that all that matters is faith in Christ. And we get that in verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which he had. He had that. And yet he recognizes that it didn't actually produce righteousness in himself. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's what's important. Take all of the other righteousness that you have, all the boxes that you check, and toss it out. All that matters is faith in Christ. Paul takes all of these things and he, he considers them two things. He says, I consider them loss. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He considers them loss. If, if you're into sports at all, and, and, and if you understand a little bit of statistics, you don't have to understand a whole lot, but wins are better than losses. It's really not that complicated, right? Wins are better than losses. Football season is the only thing that's happening right now. No basketball, no baseball, no hockey. So if you're into sports at all, all you see is football or golf, I guess. Um, there are teams... There is one team in the NFL that has 10 wins, no losses. They are the best of the best this year. There are some teams that go throughout an entire season and don't get a win at all. 16 games, nothing. Those teams, consider those years write-off years. It's like that year didn't even exist. We're just going to start over. Because when all you have is a loss category, there's really not much good to write about. And actually, it counts against you. It counts against you as players. It counts against you as co- coaches. It counts against you as management. You guys did not put anything good together. Paul says that these things I count as loss. They actually are a hindrance to who I am. The second thing he considers them is at the end of verse nine or verse eight. Sorry, I consider them garbage. Garbage. Have you ever left the garbage? In underneath your sink, that's where we keep ours. Have you ever left it in there too long? It begins to stink. Maybe if your children are like my children or if you live with somebody who does this, they throw the apple cores and the banana peels not in the compost but in the garbage. You get the fruit flies. Garbage stinks. And Paul says that all of my righteousness according to the law I count as garbage. It stinks. There was a pastor, I remember hearing, oh, 10 or 12 years ago, and he was preaching on, I can't remember what the text was, I don't even remember what his point was, which is very encouraging for me as I start preaching ministry to recognize that the vast majority of you will never remember anything I say. But maybe you'll remember this, because I remember this one thing that this pastor said. He was preaching on righteousness according to the law and righteousness before God on the basis of Jesus Christ. And he said this, your best stinks, And the fact that you think it's good proves that it's even stinkier. If you try to hang on to that, onto your righteousness according to the law, according to your works, it stinks. Paul says you need to treat it like garbage. He takes these things and he says, I I consider them lost, I consider them garbage. And then he describes alternative approaches to righteousness. Alternative approaches. You You could take your works... Paul says, don't, don't, don't hold on to those for righteousness' sake. Consider them lost. Consider them garbage. And then he says, 
I consider them lost and garbage because there's a better alternative. And then he lists, he has a, different, a couple of different phrases for understanding what those different ways are. He says, for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, so that I might gain Christ, so that I might be found in him. And then in verse nine, faith in Christ. These are all different ways of describing faith in Christ. We often talk about the fact, how, how do you become saved? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is absolutely true. And yet Paul attacks this from different angles and he says, but what does it mean to actually have faith in Christ? It means to know him. It's not just verbal agreeance with what the Bible says. It's actually coming to know Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's actually a surpassing worth in knowing Jesus, but it actually is gaining Jesus, all that he is, all the benefits of knowing who he is and what he's done. There are benefits to you. You actually gain something. To be found in him, Paul has talked about this already in in Philippians, where to be found in him means that when you stand before God, His righteousness is mine. I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am in him. And when the Father looks at me, he doesn't see my dirtiness and my, my, my garbage. He doesn't see that. He sees the righteousness, the beauty of Jesus Christ. The one thing that he says that caught my eye while I was reading through this passage this past week, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. When we use that phrase, we're usually talking about for the benefit of somebody else. Well, I better go home now for the sake of my wife so that I can relieve her from watching my children. I better do something for the sake of somebody else because there is a benefit to that other individual on me doing something or being somewhere. Is that what Paul's talking about here? Is there some benefit to Jesus Christ by me considering things loss, by considering my works, righteousness, law-based stuff is there a benefit to Jesus? I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. Paul talks about all elsewhere, people, and this, this is true even as you read through the whole Bible, forsaking the law, forsaking God, forsaking, that is abandoning, turning away from something. There are different contexts in which that phrase can be used, but to forsake God, the Israelites forsake the God that they knew and went after other idols. The opposite of forsaking is saking. Paul is saying, not here that we turn to Jesus Christ because Jesus gets some benefit from us. What Paul is saying is, we consider a loss and we turn away from all of the external stuff that we used to claim righteousness to. We turn away from that. We forsake that and we sake Christ. We seek him for the sake of Jesus Christ. We turn from something that is terrible and garbage and we turn to Jesus. And Paul repeats one of these things in verse 10, which I think highlights his particular emphasis in this passage. He says, I want to know Christ. So he lists all these different ways of what it really means to have faith in Christ and then he repeats, emphasizing here, what is he really honing in on? Knowing Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. These things in verses 10 and 11, they describe, and we don't have the time right now, these describe what it means to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The power of God does not come through following the law. You do not experience the power of God by following the list in the law. You experience the power of the resurrection by knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. 
Paul says, don't have the mindset that what you do, that your religious stuff provides any righteousness before God. He says, take on this mindset, yes, of Jesus Christ, which he has already talked about in chapter 2, but have this mindset that faith in Christ, knowing Christ, that is all that matters. But then he picks up in verses 12 through 14. Because he knows the human heart has this tendency to do the pendulum swing, right? Okay, Paul, you're saying works, righteousness, doesn't matter. Amen, Paul. Don't need to work for anything. I do not need to work to stand before God. Got it, Paul. All for it. Faith in Christ, all that matters. And then Paul says in verse 12 through 14, don't fall into the mindset that you've actually gotten there. That is, don't fall into the mindset that works don't matter. Works absolutely do not matter. But they do matter. Paul says, don't give up working for Jesus Christ. Don't give up pursuing and seeking Christ. Because knowing Jesus isn't just a one-time event. If his whole thrust is here, knowing Jesus is all that matters, he then moves into verse 12 and he says, but I don't know Jesus fully yet. There is still work to be done. There are still things to know. There is still much more of Jesus that I could seek to grasp and understand. I mean, the example that we use is people, right? Do I, do I know my wife? Yes. Did I know my wife when I first met her, when we were 12 or whatever? Yeah. But I didn't know her then like I know her now. And I'm not going to know her 50 years from now. Well, maybe that's a bit much. How old am I? Okay, 50 years. We'll do 50. I'm not going to know her then like I know her now. There is growth. There is still more to explore and understand about each other. And that is infinitely true of an infinite God and an infinite Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says, one thing I do. Paul has done many things in his ministry. But he takes this all under one thing. The one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. That is how Paul summarizes his entire ministry. His entire life, his entire Christian walk is one thing. I press on. I press on towards the goal. I press on towards Jesus. Paul has talked about the physical act stuff. But Paul's heavy emphasis in Philippians is where is your mind at? Have the mindset of Christ. Have this mindset of putting others before yourself. Paul has really been working on this mental battle, this mental conundrum that we can fall into if we're not paying attention. And Paul's mental battle is to press on, to forget what is behind. For Paul, the mental battle begins in you. Not in what you do. I consider these things loss, and I don't consider the fact, I don't consider it that I've already gotten there, that I've attained it all. Certainly not in the heavenly sense. Certainly not in the fact that he is not in the presence of Jesus right now in the heavenly courts. I haven't attained that. I haven't I haven't gotten there yet. But even in this earthly walk, I haven't gotten there yet. But I forget what is behind. And Paul can do this. He can consider those things loss. He can consider himself not yet there. Not 
not fully knowing Jesus, not being in a perfect, intimate relationship with Jesus yet, he can do that because he recognizes that God is working in him. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That is, Jesus took hold of me for a purpose. Jesus took hold of me for some reason, for some purpose, and that purpose is knowing him. And I can let go of all that I thought was important in this life in terms of earning righteousness, being a good person. I can get rid of all of that because Jesus has taken hold of me. He took that step to take hold of me and I know that in his hands, he will not let me go. Paul also says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. That is, God has called. God is working in you and me, pulling us towards himself. That's why we can, get, we can get rid of all that stuff. That's why we don't have to consider in our minds that the things that we do are actually worth something before God because God is working in us. He's going to do a much better work in you than you can do in you. He's going to do a much better work in us collectively as Crestwick Baptist Church than you and I can do in here. God has called. God is working. Christ has taken hold. And Paul feels that strain on himself, I think. That's why Paul actually writes this, I think. Yes, a warning for the believers, but I think also a warning for himself because Paul has said back in chapter one, he has said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I stay here in this life, it means fruitful labor for me. Paul recognizes that he's going to work and he's going to work hard. But Paul, he recognizes that even in his own mind as he works diligently, hard for the gospel work, for kingdom work, for preaching Jesus, Paul in himself can feel that tendency to let that pride sink in, seep in, sneak in, get in there where Paul actually thinks he could stand before God one day and say, Lord, didn't you see how long I was in prison? You owe me. Lord, don't you know how many people I preached to and how many people got saved because of what I did? You owe me. Paul himself would have felt that tendency. And if Paul... The Apostle Paul, who wrote part of the New Testament, by the way, if he says he doesn't stand before God on the basis of saying, look, Lord, look at all these letters that Christians for generations have used, have seen and understood as you speaking to them. Paul doesn't take any of that, and he doesn't say, Lord, now you owe me. If he doesn't do that, you and I haven't got a hope. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is to be found in him. Paul feels that strain, and that's why he warns the church And Paul is saying, you can't have the mindset of Christ without letting go of your mindset. You can't have the righteousness of Christ if you're still clinging to yours. You have no hope. Just use Paul as the example. You have no hope of standing before God on the basis of who you are and what you've done. And if Paul doesn't do it, neither should you. We stand on the basis of Jesus Christ and him alone. Paul is calling for a whole heart resolve. All of who you are on the inside, you you rest in Jesus, not in anything else. This is where application can get tricky because I don't know your heart. I can't tell you that the things that you do are for you or for Jesus. I can't tell from, from this side. I can't tell. Nobody else can tell that the things that you do, whether they're for yourself because you're trying to earn righteousness or if because you do them because Jesus Christ has earned your righteousness and now the works flow out of who he is and what he's done for you. I can't tell that. I can't see that. 
But this is something that is no trouble for me to write this or say this to you again. And it's a safeguard for you that I think each and every morning we ought to wake up and go, I rest in Jesus Christ, in his righteousness and his alone. That's a good way to start the day. I don't know about you, but I usually start my day grumbling because my alarm woke me up. But to start the day acknowledging that I rest in Jesus Christ and everything that I do is not to earn my righteousness before God. It's to be more effective in preaching, both in word and in deed. Explaining to people the righteousness that I have, well, that's to be found in Jesus and in Him alone. Would you like to know? Would you like to know how to stand before God one day? It's to be found in Him, to know Him, to have faith in Him. Will you do that with me this week? I won't, I won't quiz you next week whether you did it or not. But will you do that with me this week? To learn to trust Him? To spend more time in the Word and talking, communing with God in prayer so that we might learn to trust in His righteousness, not as ours? Will you do that with me this week? Small ways, big ways, morning, evening, doesn't matter. Let us go from here today trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done, not in ourselves. Father, help us this morning. Help us, we pray, as we go from here. We need the righteousness of Jesus. We recognize that. We know that. Help us as we work together, as we try to pull together as Crestwick Baptist Church to minister to our city, to minister to each other, to minister to our nation. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not trust in those things. To do them, yes. But to do them because we are pressing on to know you, to know more of you, and the blessings and benefits of who Jesus is. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.